The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. From the scenic city in Chattanooga, Tennessee, welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast, now heard in over 100 countries around the world. Glad you are here. This is the show where we chat with the world's foremost leaders and leadership experts about the powerhouse business principles of love and care. And we do it to help you transform your workplaces, create business impact, generate profits, and make the world a better place. Love and action in the context of today's episode is about this concept called psychological safety. And who better to explain what that is and, and how we can build cultures of psychological safety than a, a true expert in the field itself. And that is Dr. Timothy Clark, author of the brand new book, The Four Stages of Psychological Safety. We will explore the four stages as, as outlined in his book. And, and Tim will tell us how leaders can build an environment where employees, they feel uh, included and fully engaged and encouraged to contribute their best. So who is Dr. Timothy Clark? Well, he is an Oxford trained social scientist and he's an international authority in the fields of psychological safety and innovation, large scale change and transformation and senior leadership development. He is the founder and managing partner at Lead Factor and a highly sought after advisor, coach, and facilitator to CEOs around the world. In addition to his new book, he's also authored four other books, including Epic Change, How to Lead Change in the Global Age, and Leading with Character and Competence, Moving Beyond Title, Position, and Authority. Pleasure to have you, Tim. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Thanks, Marcel. It's a pleasure to be with you. Likewise, you know, we always start with a gratitude moment, but today I need to express my own gratitude before I ask you to offer yours, Tim. So we're recording on Friday. Today's Friday, April 17. And just last Sunday, April 12, that was, you know, Easter Sunday, my hometown of Chattanooga, Tennessee got rocked by a tornado. It was a category EF3 with wind speeds of up to 145 miles per hour. I mean, it, this thing landed without warning. And my family and I had literally 30 seconds to find shelter before this freight train just came running through our house. And, you know, I've never been on the path of a destructive and unstoppable force of nature. I mean, tornadoes are freaking scary if you've ever been through one. And, you know, as we hunkered down in the closet and I'm pushing up against the door of the closet with all my strength against the force of the wind that's trying to blow it in. As I'm hearing windows exploding inside my house and things flying around and crashing, the thought ran across my mind in one second, we're really going to get sucked right out of here. Well, 
God made it through for us. And I mean, this was probably the scariest uh, 60 seconds of my life, but we're lucky. We were able to save our house. We didn't save the garage. The garage got blown away and we lost everything inside a garage. But other people lost their homes completely and some even lost their lives. But here's the gratitude moment. I have never experienced the, the kind of response and outpouring of support and encouragement we got from friends and family and neighbors and, and total strangers who came to our aid offering anything from food to shelter and water and money. People were literally like walking up to us and handing us money and friends that offered their cars and of course their hands and muscles to help with the cleanup and, and their hearts and, and a lot of love. And, you know, I'm grateful for the spirit of humanity and how resilient we are in the face of adversity. I mean, here we are in a global pandemic. If that isn't bad enough, let's throw in a tornado on top for good measure. You know, now we have a party, right? <laughs> but seriously, wow. I mean, Chattanooga rose up and showed their character. And I'm so proud of my city. And personally, for us as a family, I, I'm so proud of what we saw in our community. I mean, the best of what humanity has to offer showed up in the mayhem and they came to our aid and the aid of those around us that were in need. I mean, I needed people and they came and I'm eternally grateful. And you know what, Tim, I'm seeing this all over the place with COVID-19. I mean, it's, it's the human spirit in all of us in, in a time of crisis. We rise up with strength and courage to help others in need. It's, it's in our DNA. And for that, I am deep in deep, deep gratitude. So that's my, <laughs> that's my gratitude moment, Tim. What about you? I mean, what are you grateful? Do you have a gratitude moment these days? Sure. Well, I ha we haven't had a tornado, <laughs> but I think I, I, I would echo the same thought in that there's opportunity. So in this crisis, there's opportunity in the calamity. Yeah. And I think that's what we all need to look for. Where is the opportunity in the calamity? And I think that one of the biggest opportunities that people are seeing, and they're naturally doing this, is that they're setting aside petty differences that often divided us. And they're saying, it doesn't matter. These petty differences don't matter. And so I think that this crisis is giving us the opportunity to see the essential versus the non-essential. And there's so much in life that we've been worried about, preoccupied with, and, and suddenly it doesn't matter anymore. So we're seeing with greater clarity, we are valuing humanity and we're setting aside those petty differences. Mm. So I'm yeah. grateful for that. That's awesome. It's almost like, uh, you know, this, this thing has leveled the playing field now because we're all in it together, riding out the storm. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Thanks for that, Tim. So for those of us not familiar with your work, um, what would you say is your reason for getting up in the morning in, in the Simon Sinek sense? What, what is your why? Uh, actually, I've written that down. So my why is very short. So my professional why is to help others discover and act on the truth. That's mm -hmm. it. That's my why. That's what gets me up in the morning. That's, that's kind of the rocket fuel that propels me. If I can do that, if I can help people through the discovery process to find the truth and then act on it, 
that's that that gives me ultimate motivation to do what I do, and I find a deep satisfaction in doing that because I'm trying to help people get better. Okay, so that prompts me to ask you a question that was not on the script for me, but that is, what is what is your truth? Is there one universal truth that you're calling people to, or your own brand of truth? What that what would that be? So in leadership, here's my here's my belief: principles. And principles are, are aspects or elements of truth in leadership. Those don't change. They are eternal. What changes are two things. Number one, conditions. So think about the conditions around us and how they've changed with this pandemic. So number one, conditions change. Number two, goals change. And this is always true of humanity. Our conditions are changing their dynamic and our goals and objectives are changing. But the principles by which we practice leadership, they do not change. Mm. I couldn't agree with you more, Tim. So let's skim the, the book. And here it is. If, uh, if you're watching the video, the book is called The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, Defining the Path to Inclusion and Innovation. So why this book? Why now? It's a good question. I think the why now is because there are forces at work in our society that are really just blowing up this concept and yet people need to understand it better. So on one side is what I call the the moral force. And the moral force is really at work with millennials. They're pouring into the workforce and they're saying, you know what, if if I can't have psychological safety, then I'm I'm out of here. I'm not going to tolerate an organization that doesn't allow me to be me because the basic definition of psychological safety is that it's not expensive to be yourself. And so there's, there's, there's this, there's this demand, this growing demand for psychological safety and organizations that don't supply it will increasingly, they will bleed out their, Mm. their talent. They're not going to survive. Yeah. And then on the competitive side of things, for organizations that need to innovate in order to, to survive, they're not going to be able to survive if they don't supply psychological safety because it's a precondition for innovation. You have to have it to innovate. So you can see these, these the competitive force and the moral force are at work and they're acting upon organizations for centuries, many organizations have tolerated the intolerable. We've normalized behavior that's unacceptable, bullying behavior, public shaming behavior, harassing behavior, and we've normalized it. Mm. And we just said, um, you know, that's the way it is. You, you, you just, that's just the way it is. You can't change it. But we've, re- we've reached a tipping point in our society and, and, and by the way, this is being accelerated by the pandemic where people are saying, no, I'm done. We're not doing that anymore. We're just not doing that anymore. We, we have to come to terms with our work environment and our work culture and the way we interact and the way we treat each other. And some of these things just, let's just call it for what it is. It's not right. And we need to go forward with new terms of engagement. Okay, let's address the uh, the question marks in the room because we've already tossed the, the term psychological safety. 
around. And, um, you know, for people that may be hearing it for the first time, or even if you haven't, I have written numerous articles on my Inc.com column on psychological safety. I have read numerous articles on psychological safety. And sometimes there are different definitions out there. So how would you define it? Right. Well, as I said, a very basic definition would be that it's not expensive to be yourself. In other words, politically, economically, socially, emotionally, it's not expensive. If it is expensive, you're not yourself. You're going to change your behavior. And so what we know from the research is that psychological safety, the level of psychological safety, has a profound impact on people's behavior. So let me, let me expand that a little bit. So it means that in any social unit, you can interact with people without fear of being embarrassed or marginalized or punished in some way. So you can bring your whole self to that social unit, whether it's at work, at school, at home, in a social organization, in a civic organization, whatever the social unit is, you can bring your whole self and you can participate without those fears. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible to me. And I think uh, quite a few Stanford professors, maybe uh, Jeffrey Pfeiffer and maybe Bob Sutton, I forget which ones that have written on the effects of all of the things you mentioned, bullying and harassing and all that uh, on the on the health of people and how people are literally dying <laughs> in the workplace. So, uh, and thanks for that definition, because that's something that I think all of us can relate to. I have been there. I have been in toxic work environments where it affected my health and well and well being. Um, so, before we get into the the book's big idea, because I want I want to get into the four the four stages. Right in the preface, you caught my attention with this tragic story that led you to, in your own words be obsessed with psychological safety. Can you share that story with us? Sure. So I had a very unusual professional experience. Uh, My wife and I, we came back from Oxford University. I wasn't quite finished with my research. And we were poor. We were poor grad students. I had to get a job. So of all places, I got a job in in a steel mill. And I ended up staying a while, and I ended up becoming the plant manager. Now, this is a big operation, Uh, 3,000 employees, about 2,500 production and maintenance workers, massive 1,700-acre facility. Long story short, one day, a maintenance worker was crushed under a load of iron ore. Mm. He was crushed. He died immediately. And I had the assignment to go with the CEO to find his wife that afternoon and tell her that he wouldn't be coming back home that day. That, that experience was a defining experience for me. And I think in some ways it changed my life because I developed an obsession with safety, but I realized that safety was a holistic, we needed to think about it more holistically. It wasn't just physical safety. It was psychological safety. So if you don't have physical safety, what can happen? You can be injured, you can be killed. But if you don't have psychological safety, you can suffer devastating emotional wounds. Mm. I realized it was my stewardship 
to help create a culture, to curate and protect a culture that would provide psychological safety to the members of the organization. That's a sacred stewardship that every leader has. And I, I started to really internalize that at a, at a completely different level. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, Tim, um, something else I, I found really compelling that you describe as perhaps the supreme test of a leader. And you write, and I quote, innovation is never easy to think of. It requires creative abrasion and constructive dissent, processes that rely on high intellectual friction and low social friction. What do you mean by that? So think about how we solve problems in organizations. Think about how we come up with new solutions. The way that we do that is that we, we work together and we, we have ideas that collide and rub against each other. So that's a process of creative abrasion, constructive dissent. So what does that mean? That means we need high levels of intellectual friction. But at the same time, we need to reduce the level of social friction so that the leader's job, the leader's stewardship is to simultaneously do those two things. Increase the level of intellectual friction so that we're having hard-hitting dialogue. We're debating issues on their merits, right? It's an idea meritocracy. But at the same time, we're bringing down the social friction. Why? Because humans are sensitive. And if we, if we have a lot of social friction, then our whole process grinds to a halt and we don't make any progress. So we've got to keep that down and then boost the intellectual friction up. So that, that leader, that psychological safety, if he or she provides that, that becomes the lubricating oil mm. of collaboration. So if you can do those two things simultaneously, you can create a world-class team, world-class organization. Yeah. Okay, I'm dying to unpack the four stages of psychological safety that your book is based on. So let's frame it based on the research first. I mean, what what did your research inform you that led to you to these four stages? And by the way, I stages to me implies that it's a progression. Is that right? It is a progression. Yeah, one builds on the on the next one. Okay, good. So tell me about the research behind it then. So what I used is both qualitative and quantitative research. Qualitative means observation and interviews. Quantitative means survey research, where we would collect quantitative data in, right, from surveys. And so I used both approaches, and the pattern became clear, this progression of four stages. And this is where the, the, the light went on. The light bulb, it just went on. And, and I could see it clearly that there's this natural progression of four stages. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about those four stages. Now, they, they are um, inclusion safety, learner safety, contributor safety, and challenger safety. Let's take it one by one. Inclusion safety. Unpack that for us. Sure. Inclusion safety means this is your foundation. Inclusion safety means that you come into a social unit, a team, an organization, and you feel included. You feel accepted. You feel that you belong. You feel that you're part of the team. 
That's always the first thing that a human being wants and needs in a new social unit. So inclusion safety satisfies that first level of basic human need. And by the way, this is a human right. Inclusion safety is not something that you earn. It's something that you're owed by virtue of the fact that you're, they're, they're human. So if you're human and you're harmless and you don't present us with harm, right? We owe this to you. We owe this to you. And in this, in this chapter, I explain the concept that worth precedes worthiness. So we don't accept you based on your worthiness. That comes later. We accept you based on your worth. And there's no justification for us to deny you inclusion safety. We owe that to you. That's a human right. That's stage one, inclusion safety. Okay, so how, starting with stage one then, as sort of the baseline, inclusion safety, how do we raise the level of inclusion safety among teams? Okay, so there are many concrete behavioral things that we can do, but the first thing that we have to do is we have to, we have to do a, a self-assessment, a self-inventory, and we have to ask ourselves, uh, do, do I possess any bias or prejudice that's getting in the way? Do we have any arbitrary distinctions uh, in our team? Am I entertaining any what I call junk theories of superiority, right? So we, we run our societies and have for centuries, we run our societies and our institutions based on these false theories of superiority that somehow, you know, some people are superior to others based on certain bases. So think about it. So what, what are the bases, the bases on which we justify superiority? Race, gender, education, wealth, uh, geography. It, it's all false. It's all false. Hmm. And so we need to we need to clear the decks of all of those false theories of superiority. We use those as soothing stories to justify our superiority. Well, all of those theories are ridiculous. So we need to disabuse ourselves of all of those theories. We need to carefully analyze ourselves and our behavior to see if there's anything that we're doing that is marginalizing other people. And sometimes we have blind spots. Yeah. Right? And we don't even know it. And so we need to ask people very candidly, what am I doing? What behaviors do I have that are getting in the way that I may not even be very conscious of? So that's where we start. So you're saying that the leader needs to be humble enough to ask for that kind of uh, candid feedback, right? That's right. Easier said than done. But you know, what's funny is that um, what you're talking about a lot is, is mindset. It's belief system and that you have to break patterns of false belief systems to get to even seeing the world in, in, the, in the sense that you're speaking of, that all of us are human and we need to have inclusion safety. In your work, in my work, uh, sometimes it's hard to convince people that are stuck in a pattern of, of belief. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's kind of hard to break down those walls. It is. I'll give your listeners a, a tip on how to do that. So when we are trying to build and we're trying to change that mindset, it's very, very difficult. And so one of the things that I would recommend is that we behave 
until we believe. So what does that mean? If you just focus on awareness and appreciation of differences, it's hard to get there. So a better way to get there is to behave inclusively, even if you even if you haven't crossed this threshold of conviction, even if it's not 100% in your heart, but you go out and you behave inclusively. You what happens is over time that behavior creates its own confirming evidence mm. and you realize that 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 inclusiveness that's the right thing and so your behavior leads to your belief instead of the other way around it's hard to get to the belief if you haven't been doing the behavior right does that make sense it makes sense and it and it also uh, i would add that you have to trust in the behavior changing your belief system that's there's a trust factor involved as well that's so right. it's almost like you have to surrender yourself to this is how it's going to be i just have to trust in the outcome that on the other side that uh, things are going to change for me and my team um, that's what that's what's coming up for me no i love i love your word marcel to surrender because that's what it is yeah surrender your bias your prejudice exclusive uh, thoughts and beliefs that you have cherished, just let it go. Yeah. And watch what happens. It's quite amazing. Wow. Okay. So then the progression then according to the framework then is the next stage is learner safety. I mean, how do we know we've arrived there and talk about what, what that is? Learner safety means that you feel safe to be able to engage in the learning process, in the discovery process. Again, without fear that you'll be marginalized or embarrassed or punished. So what does that mean? That means that you can ask questions, give and receive feedback, uh, experiment, even make mistakes, and you're not going to be humiliated in the process. Now, the reason that this is so important is because the research shows us very clearly. You look at the research that social and behavioral scientists have done, the learning process is an intellectual process and an emotional process combined. Those, the head and the heart are interwoven. You cannot pull them apart. So, for example, one of the cases that I give in the book is that every 26 seconds, a student drops out of high school in America. Why is that? Is it because they can't do the work? That's not why barring some legitimate learning disability, they can do the work. The reason is they've been emotionally wounded and they don't have the confidence. They don't feel the support. So learning is, again, emotional and intellectual. You need psychological safety to be able to really learn because we all bring inhibitions and anxieties to the learning process. So Tim has already given you listeners a, a few tips on how to raise the learner safety levels. I can think of experimentation, allowing for people to, to um, you know, break stuff, if you will, <laughs> without stuff. reprimand. I like, I like it. You got to <laughs> be able to break stuff. Yeah. And allow them to, to exercise their curiosity and uh, take ownership of their work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so then that leads to the third stage, Tim, and you call it contributor safety. Unpack that for us. Okay. So let's think about this. So 
Stage one was, I feel included. Stage two is, I feel safe to learn. Now, stage three is that I feel that I'm a full-fledged member of the team and I can contribute my skills and experience and knowledge to make a meaningful difference. And again, that's the next stage of human need. I want to take what I've learned and I want to apply it and I want to make a meaningful difference. Human beings have a deep desire to do that. So that's the next stage. So they, what do they need? They need some guidance. They need encouragement. They need autonomy. And they need accountability to do that. But we've got to allow them to do that. That's what contributor safety is all about. Mm. To give them that guidance. We still, we still have accountability. But we've got to let them go to a certain extent, right? We can't manage them on a leash like this. That's not going to work. We can't micromanage people. Uh, that's, we can't suppress them that way. Yeah. And the last stage is challenger safety. Walk us through challenger safety. Challenger safety is the culminating stage. It's the ultimate stage. It means that psychological safety has come to the highest possible level, which allows you to challenge the status quo without jeopardizing your status or your reputation. So think about that. You are taking the biggest risk. You're at the highest level of personal vulnerability to challenge the way things are done. But that's what we need. This is what we call a license to innovate because innovation by its very nature is disruptive of the status quo. So that's what it's the highest level. Tim, talk to us a little bit about the absence of psychological safety in a team. I mean, how, how do they behave? And your listeners, just think think back. Think about any experience that you've had in your life where you were on a team or in an organization and you didn't feel that. How did that affect you? Typically, what happens is if if someone if if you don't feel that, you're gonna retreat, you're going to recoil, you're gonna curl up, and you're gonna manage personal risk. Mm. So now you're acting out of pain avoidance. You're, you're acting out of loss prevention. You're trying not to be hurt. And so are you, are you giving your best? Are you giving your all? No, of course not. You're managing against potential loss. That's what happens. Yeah, yeah. Talk to us about the link between psychological safety and uh, people's levels of well-being because that's such an important thing to have is a good personal well-being at work. Right. Hopefully, the listeners can see the, the direct link. If the psychological safety is not there and you can't be yourself and you can't participate and contribute and do the things that you need to grow and develop as a human being, then eventually that's going to have an impact on your mental and your emotional well-being because you're not being allowed to flourish. You need to be liberated so that you can flourish in an organization. So you're being held back. Ultimately, that has a profound impact on the way that you, on your self-concept, on your self-worth, on your self-regard, on your overall sense of self. Yeah, yeah. Tim, are there uh, downfalls to psychological safety? I mean, more specifically, can there be too much unhealthy psychological safety where, where people expect special treatment, they want to be caught in, et cetera. They want privileges. 
sometimes people misinterpret it and it does, they get off the rails because they think that psychological safety means that they don't have to be held accountable. This is a, this is a misinterpretation. This is where uh, they want to be indulged. They want to be overprotected. They want to be coddled. This is not what psychological safety means. Psychological safety means that we have a high tolerance for candor, but we maintain respect for each other. We maintain mutual accountability. We maintain a high level of permission. We're holding ourselves accountable, but we're not indulging each other, right? So you can see where people could misinterpret it and say, oh, it means that you know, I can go do what I want. That's not what it means. We're all accountable, um, but it's the way that we engage. It's, it's, it's the way that we govern and interact with each other. Yeah. And uh, so if I'm building a culture of psychological safety, uh, is there any industry or environment where that just won't work for me? I don't think so. So I go back to my own background in heavy industry. I worked in an environment where you were deeply socialized as a leader to be command and control, uh, fear and intimidation. The leader was um, really a dictator, right? There's, there's really no justification. I don't think you can say, well, I'm in a, the industry or the business that's an exception. I've never seen an exception yet. Never. Hmm. Okay. Let's empower our middle managers with some tools. And you have this nifty one that uh, is available for middle managers to help them with some, some tips, some practical strategies to raise the level of psychological safety. Tell us about that. Right. So we have what's called the behavioral guide, which is a companion to the book. And it's a free download that people can access at, at our website, leaderfactor.com. And it gives you very concrete behaviors for each of the four stages that you can implement. And so for, for listeners that are trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I do that? Where do I start? What very practical things do I start with? That's what this is all about. So you, you can um, get the behavioral guide and, and start going to work. Excellent. And I'm going to have that in my show notes as well. So check it out. Uh, when the episode is released. Tim, we have this tradition here where um, we juxtapose principles of leadership love in action against its counterpart, which is fear. And here we are in 2020 and fear is still prevalent in how organizations and businesses are managed. But we keep finding evidence that the principles of love and care and inclusion and respect and autonomy and empathy, which are all principles of psychological safety, these things lead to high performance and business outcomes. So why do people still lead through fear and control? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope, I hope that th- this pandemic is teaching people that that's, that, that's not going to work. I think people continue to, g- to lead that way out of insecurity and out of arrogance, because here's what fear does. It's very simple. Fear, when someone pushes the fear button, it triggers what we call the self-censoring instinct. And we all have a self-censoring instinct. When that self-censoring instinct is activated, we retreat and we protect ourselves and it changes our behavior. 
So to lead through fear is actually an abdication of leadership. You're actually not leading anymore. And that's a, it's actually a real cop-out. It means that you haven't invested in learning how to become a true leader because you're relying on, fear relies on either coercion or manipulation instead of legitimate forms of influence. So you, you've abdicated your leadership as a leader. You're not leading anymore. That's just a cop-out. That's an easy way out. That's what you've done. Instead of stepping up to the plate and saying, I'm going to lead with pure motives. Because here's what humans understand. Humans have an innate capacity to smell and sense a person's motive. And if your motive is impure, if you're self-serving, then then you're not going to pass the smell test as a leader. We're going to sniff you out. You can't, you can't fake us out. You might fake us out for a week or two, maybe a month, but that's, that's it. And, and then we're on to you. And so you've got, to, you've got to bring pure motive to your leadership so that we know that you care about us, that there's genuine interest and care and concern. And we can even use the, the term love, right? Psycho, one of the things that I say in the book is that psychological safety is a form of industrialized love. That's what it is. So you must bring pure motive or we're going to sniff you out. Mm. Mm. I always like to get perspective from my guest about why we keep rewarding these behaviors in the leadership ranks. My understanding is, my conclusion is that fear are the fear and the power based control styles of micromanagement are relics of the industrial age that have been passed on from generation to generation and so we're back to how we started the conversation mindset and belief system we haven't broken the belief system but what what's your take on why why people still are rewarded to uh with those kind of fear based behaviors at the highest ranks well, I think you're right, Marcel. They are relics. They are antiques from the industrial age. These are pieces, are vestiges of the imperial model of leadership. And the reason that we continue to reward them is because we often look at those leaders and say, ah, those, these are the action-oriented leaders that get things done. The problem is we're not looking at the big picture and we're not realizing the train of consequences, the carnage that they leave behind in terms of unintended consequences, the resentment and the broken professional lives, the wake of destruction that they actually lead or leave behind them. And so what, what, we, what we're shifting towards, and I do think this is being accelerated in the crisis, is we need leaders that create psychological safety and maintain accountability at the same time. I do think that we're starting to see that this is possible and it's absolutely what is morally required in organizations. And so I do, I do see that shifting, Marcel. That's where I see the opportunity in this calamity. Mm -hmm. Tim, we were uh, talking a little bit offline about how everybody is pivoting to the virtual now that we are in this pandemic. So that means that your work, you're sort of in that trying to understand how to, how to 
do your, how to pivot yourself in your research, your work? How, what are you doing? What are you discovering about psychological safety now in a remote or virtual setting? How do you do it? What I'm discovering is that leading a team in a virtual environment requires a higher tolerance for candor because if you're a leader, you got to dispense with the superficial nature of a lot of conversation and a lot of relationships because that's not going to get it done. So, for example, if, if in a virtual environment, you've got to check in with every member of your team at least twice a day. That's what we're finding. That cycle time has to be uh, tighter. So if I'm checking in with you, Marcel, in the morning, and I say, hey, Marcel, how's it going? Tell me, um, and you say, hey, it's, go- it's going fine. That's not getting it done. We have to go to a deeper level of intimacy. And I need to say, Marcel, tell me how you're really doing. And so what's happening is that the virtual environment is requiring we go to a deeper level of intimacy and candor in our relationships so that we can maintain engagement, so that we can maintain trust, dispense with the superficialities. It's not going to get it done. We really need to level with each other. We really need to care. The intent's got to be there. The more frequent cycle time of our touch points in our communication it's changing our terms of engagement hmm. and that intent, that pure intent has to be there. We're learning that. If you don't have that as a leader, you, you can't keep your people engaged and you can't maintain that sense of community on a virtual team. Yeah, that is so powerful. So my, my quick takeaway from that point is that even though there's a video screen there, we're talking to people and we're, we may be saying, how are you doing? Sometimes hold us back. We're kind of uh, inhibiting ourselves even over a computer screen. So you're calling us to, um, even in our virtual way, step out of our virtual comfort zone, if you will, and dig a little deeper and go against your own tendencies to, I don't know, hold back your emotions, if you will. And so, yeah, so that's, that's really powerful get people to express what's really, really in their hearts. Ah, my goodness. That is so powerful. Tim, we, um, this has been an amazing conversation, let me just say. And, uh, and so we bring it home with two final questions. And personally, what, what is really tugging at your heart right now that you would like our listeners to know? Well, I'm just hoping that they are finding the treasure that is in in the, in the middle of this crisis, in this context, I hope that they are able to see the essential from the non-essential. And um, it, it, it makes me think about this amazing quote from Frederick Douglass, the social reformer. He said, and this is a brilliant, it's a brilliant insight. He said, I know of no rights of race that are superior to the rights of humanity. Now, So think about that. That means, so you can apply this to any human characteristic, any demographic. The rights of humanity are supreme. Hopefully in this crisis, we are realizing that. And we realize that these other differences by which we divide ourselves, we need to get rid of those. Those are arbitrary distinctions. So hopefully our heads and our hearts are being elevated 
to a level of humanity and we don't worry about those things, that will create a revolution as it changes our mindset. But it, it has to happen at an individual basis. And it will liter- it literally changes the way that we interact with each other. And we, we just don't get hung up on petty differences anymore. That's what I'm hoping for. And by the way, that's what I'm seeing in many instances. Yeah, yeah. And you get to take it home your way with one thing you'd like us to take home with us to make a difference in our lives. What would that be? I, I would just uh, offer up to all, all everyone out there that you are a leader. A leader is not based on title or position or authority. So number one. And number two, recognize that then your influence is profound. You're going to either lead the way or you're going to get in the way. So it's your choice. And I hope that you'll lead the way and that you'll, you'll conduct an, uh, a real penetrating, unsparing analysis of yourself and ask yourself, how do I get to the next level? What do I need to do so I can be just a little bit better? Because this is an opportunity to do that. Fantastic. He is Dr. Timothy Clark. The book is called The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, Defining the Path to Inclusion and Innovation. Tim, if people want to connect with you, how can they do that, And including getting that download? Sure. Visit us at leaderfactor.com. And uh, all those downloads are available for free. And then um, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn, Timothy R. Clark, or Twitter at Timothy R. Clark. And we'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. Thanks for your time, Tim. It's been a pleasure and honor. Thanks very much. So here's my takeaway from today's episode. You know, every single one of us has probably been ignored or silenced or demeaned, bullied, or humiliated at some point. I mean, I have for sure to the point where it cost me my health about 15 years ago working under toxic management. So it's painful. And when it happens, it does something to us. It triggers something deep down inside ourselves that censors our true voice and our ability to be authentic. And we stop being who we truly are. And because of that, we start performing at our best. Now, I'm speaking to leaders here because this could be your team or organization, depending on your human interaction with your own people. So what Timothy Clark is putting forth here for us is that we need to eliminate these patterns of human interaction that cause so much social friction and so much fear. And we can transform our workplaces if our people feel included, safe to learn, safe to contribute, and safe to challenge the status quo. You know, I know that if I had these four things present in my previous jobs, it would have been a game changer for my own performance and my teammates' performance, but also for the success of the business itself. Thanks for listening to this episode. My sincere thanks to Dr. Timothy Clark for his wisdom and to you for spreading the love in action message around the world. If you've missed any episode, you can visit my website, marcelschwantes.com, and you'll 
find the Love in Action tab. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Next week, I sit down and chat with my friend Stephen M. R. Covey, son of the late, great Stephen Covey, to talk about the 30th anniversary of his dad's legendary book, Everyone Has It on Their Bookshelves, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Until then, don't forget, love in action. It's what will truly set your leadership apart. The choice is yours. Hey, Love in Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.